Today on Peace Talks Radio, we explore efforts to find peace after divorce. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you'll hear the story of my own divorce from Peace Talks Radio co-founder Suzanne Kreider. You'll hear how we addressed the conflicts in our marriage, how and why, despite many good years together, we settled on divorce, and how we found a peaceful place to land. I mean, there was just like absolutely no acrimony. If anything, it was like, no, you take this. No, you take this. But yeah, we did cooperate on, you know, trying to find apartments for each other. So it was literally this very sweet, sort of painful letting go. Plus a conversation with a therapist who helps divorced couples with children find more ease after the upset of divorce. And your love for your children has to be the overriding motivation against your own injury, against your own hurt, against your own resentment, and against your desire to win. All that and more today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We put the spotlight on peacemakers throughout history and today, whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations. We consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. In the United States, about 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Divorce is often described in the language of war. The ex-spouses battle over possessions and children. Attorneys look for ammunition. The warring partners burn bridges, plunder bank accounts, and drop bombshells. In a sense, the script is already written for us. Divorce is a civil war in a family. But does it have to be that way? What happens when both parties want to write the ending a different way and divorce peacefully? Can they really? This next story took a bit of extra courage to tell because it's personal. It's about the people who founded this program, myself, Paul Ingalls, and Suzanne Kreider. We used to be married. Hmm, some of you might say. I guess you weren't able to resolve your own conflicts, were you? Well, in a way, yes, but Suzanne and I have emerged from our divorce into such a cooperative space that preserves our friendship. We've had a lot of our friends often tell us over the years, if you ever do an episode for Peace Talks Radio about divorce, you've got to tell your own story. So today, we're finally doing it. We brought in producer Sasha Eslanian to help us tell it. Sasha produced a radio documentary in 2009 called Divorced Kid about the long-term effects of divorce on children. Although Suzanne and I did not have kids, we thought she could help reveal what might be useful for other people to hear about our story. What might be useful to anyone trying to manage a peaceful divorce. Here's what she found. Paul Engels and Suzanne Kreider divorced in 2004 after a 20-year relationship. They were married for 13 years. I interviewed them separately and together. I wanted to hear the story in their own words and see their dynamic together. They're relaxed in each other's company. The first thing you notice when they talk about each other is how much they still like each other. I feel amazingly grateful to have lived with Paul for 18 years. Paul is the kindest person I've ever met. We liked hanging out with each other. You know, we made each other laugh a lot and still do. (laughs) I did a Skype call with her just the other day and we were joking about there was, there'd been an earthquake in DC and, uh, you know, she was sitting at the chair and she made like the earth was opening up beneath her and she just sort of slipped from the screen you know, with her hand, like, 
grasping up at the camera. And she's just funny. Paul and Suzanne said what worked about their marriage, what was at its core, was that they were friends. And they pushed hard to communicate honestly, even when it was difficult. One tool they learned at a couple's retreat, even before they were married, was something known by the acronym GRAPH. G was each person expresses something they're grateful for. R was each person makes a request. A, I think, was acknowledge. You just acknowledge, gee, you've had a hard day. Or, wow, you're not having enough time to do something fun. And then F, it was just I'm feeling blank. You could start with one of the four, and maybe each person would do a back and forth, and it would only take two minutes. Or you might start on one, and it might take two hours to just discuss one of them. That tool, I think, really got us through a really rocky time. You know, Suzanne was the architect in terms of saying, I'd like the relationship to be better. Let's do something about it. One of the things Paul remembers that Suzanne called him on was he didn't want to try her ideas. She wanted to go on a local television dance show, something Paul didn't feel comfortable doing. But the disagreement spawned a novel solution, fun night. Every other Wednesday night, they'd take turns surprising each other with something fun to do that the other couldn't veto. It created this sort of adventurous mystery night, really, because oftentimes, you know, one or the other of us wouldn't reveal until the very last moment where we were going or what we were doing. I took her to a batting cage one time. I think a lot of times, for me, I was trying to think, what did I used to do as a kid that I really liked? He had all these elaborate ones, like <laughs> when it was the end of Seinfeld, there was an article about Seinfeld that had all the photographs of the main characters, and he he cut out their pictures and he put them on little sticks, so they were like little puppets almost. And then we had to write our own ending to the Seinfeld series, because we hated, yeah, we hated the ending of the show. So it was just super, super creative. Paul and Suzanne's fun night is a bit ironic because novelty seeking together is one of the tips for keeping a strong connection between partners. But connection might have been something of Paul and Suzanne's downfall, too. They were each other's world, self-described introverts who were each other's best friends. They built a house outside Albuquerque. It was a refuge at first. Essentially, what we created was this sort of boat out in the ocean uh, in this house that uh, we had uh, committed to building together, and it was sort of the dream house. But then we were sort of out there on our own, and it was like the relationship was all there was. And I think that that's, you know, that's kind of a dangerous place to be. Suzanne experienced moments on meditation retreats and at her high school reunions that made her reflect on her life. But then an event happened that changed everything. Her mother called to tell her she had a terminal cancer diagnosis. I thought, gee, what do I say to that? I'm going to just talk to her like I would talk to a friend. I, I just said, how do you feel about that? She said, I have no regrets about my life. I've gotten to do everything I ever wanted to do. Then the conversation was all about me. <laughs> because I realized I couldn't say that. I think that set Suzanne sort of looking at her own mortality and looking around and wondering if this was the future that she really wanted and if she was really going to blossom enough as a human being in this marriage 
not that I wasn't married to a wonderful man, but that I hadn't lived the dreams that I wanted to live in terms of what I wanted in my own life, not what I wanted in my marriage. One of Suzanne's main dreams was to pursue Buddhism. For 15 years, she'd been going on meditation retreats, staying for weeks, even months at a time. But she realized she wanted to go even deeper into monastery life. She wanted to ordain as a Buddhist nun. It was one of the main reasons I wanted a divorce. Suzanne told Paul she wasn't happy and wasn't going to fix their marriage. He suggested seeing a marriage counselor together, but weeks later still hadn't lined one up. Suzanne decided to move ahead with her solo voyage. I remember I was really nervous, and I had um, I had known for a couple of weeks that I was going to tell him, and I was just feeling upset because I hadn't told him yet. She just sat down and said, you know, I want a divorce. Um, it's not about you. It's just really what, you know, I need to do. And what I recall is when I said it, the first thing he said was something like, I've been waiting for you to say this to me since the day we met. The The room just sort of froze. You know, it's one of those moments that's like people describe things moving into slow motion. He never tried to stop me. He said, I would never ask you to stay if you're unhappy. If you love someone, set them free. They describe a lot of tears flowing in the days and weeks that followed. Sorrow more than anger seems to have been the prevailing sentiment. Their coming apart involved lots of honest conversations about the hurt and pain, and very little drama. The check-in strategy that Suzanne said got them through rocky times earlier helped them again in the months before the divorce was official. They do admit to one flare-up. There was confusion on just how fast Paul might begin dating again, Suzanne insisted he wait until the divorce was final. She admits being a bit taken aback by how easily he seemed to move on. They didn't get lawyers involved. They split the sale of the house down the middle and divided their possessions. And the toughest one was um, we had this old, old stainless steel pot that my dad had used to make popcorn from when I was a little kid. And I inherited that from my parents. And uh, Paul would always make popcorn in it. And so it was really lovely. And I remember just holding it and thinking, if I tell my siblings that I gave this popcorn pot to Paul, they are going to kill me. But I just couldn't keep it. So he got the popcorn pot. I mean, there was just like absolutely no acrimony. If anything, it was like, no, you take this. No, you take this. But yeah, we did cooperate on, you know, trying to find apartments for each other. Um, I can you know, remember riding around and, and looking at places and trying to imagine where stuff was going to fit. And the first week in those apartments, we had dinner every night that week together. And then, and then we had, and then I think we went down to every other night. So it was literally this very sweet, sort of painful letting go. You know, we still like hung out together. We still went to ball games together. You know, it was sort of like, we still like doing these things, and we don't want to do them with anybody else yet. At one of those ball games, Paul even remembered Suzanne turned to him and said, if this divorce thing doesn't work out in five or six years, can we sort of revisit this? Paul and Suzanne worked over several months to recast the inner world of their marriage into something new, a warm friendship between two people who've known each other for 20 years. There is all that shared history. 
those family stories and your shared experience with those people that you can't really just erase, nor do you really want to. Uh, life's hard. You know, why, why should we run away from you know, things that could make it even just a little bit easier? And I think if we're a little bit unconventional in our thinking about those sorts of things or, or what other people might expect or going against the grain a little bit, I think we can welcome something in that really helps us. Paul and Suzanne set the tone for friends and family for how to deal with divorced people who didn't want to trash talk each other. I think that was something really great. Another great thing about a divorce and a tip I would give is to really have a lot of integrity about your privacy about your divorce, which we did. Um, When we told people we were getting divorced, um, I would say I would appreciate if you would respect our privacy. Uh, Because I think people kind of want to get in and they want to know all the details and stuff, but they want to turn it into a drama. A few months after the divorce, Suzanne went off to Burma. She ordained temporarily there as a Buddhist nun and turned 50. I took a picture of myself on my 50th birthday with this little shaved head and the pink robes, and I showed it to Paul when I got home, and he said, that's the happiest picture I've ever seen of you. Which, by the way, would have included all our marriage photos. And it was really true. I was just ecstatic. I think, I really think that's a lot about what middle age is about. It's about asking the questions of our life and then doing whatever we can to answer them. And and the answers might not be what we think they're going to be. Mine certainly wasn't. But wow, just to be able to not have to keep saying, I can't do that because I'm married, or I can't travel because I'm married, or I can't fill in the blank because I'm married. Ultimately, Suzanne discovered the monastic lifestyle wasn't for her. But she kept traveling, checking things off her life to-do list. The divorce honeymoon, if you'll permit me to call it that, didn't last. Suzanne was uneasy. She realized if she really was going to work on herself as an individual, she needed to separate more from Paul and not decide in advance where their relationship would come to rest. In the second year of divorce, she asked for six months with no communication. And that actually really hit me harder, maybe even than the the request for divorce. Um, I can remember you know, just feeling completely cut adrift then. Because to me, that sounded like the friendship was going to end. I mean, when she asked for the divorce, she said, Paul, I want to be friends forever, but I don't want to be married anymore. And the friends forever meant a lot to me. She ended that plan six months, about five months, and sent me an email. And, um, you know, we sort of picked up the friendship again and um, restructured it and have been sort of shaping it as we go. I mean, there have been moments when I think that uh, each of us would sort of ask the question like, well, how much is too much and how often should we be talking? Paul and Suzanne view their divorce not as the breakdown of a marriage, but as the end of a good marriage. Neither wants the old marriage back. Both entered the middle-aged online dating scene. Paul discovered the tremendous awkwardness people feel trying never to mention their former partners again. When I would date somebody else who had an ex or a former spouse, they would use that word a lot. They'd say, you know, my ex or this, and they kept using that word. And at some point I said, what's his name? A couple of times they said, yes, thank you. His name is such and such. And they, they sort of actually felt relieved that they didn't have to use this code, right? That it was a person. 
While Suzanne used stronger relationships with family and friends, world travel, and growing her business to help build her inner peace, Paul mixed dating with therapy and developed a comfort with solitude, which he says always gives one a safe fallback position. Today, he's in a committed relationship. I don't think about, you know, getting back together with Suzanne. I think about, you know, the the wonder of being able to still have this really comfortable relationship with her and really appreciate that my new partner sees that as really the time in my life where I became the person that my new partner's fallen in love with. And I think she recognizes and thanks Suzanne for helping me become a more complete person and a better listener and, you know, a better partner. So, you know, when you sort of look at all those, I'd say, good outcomes, then the idea of, you know, wishing it hadn't happened tends to fade away. Okay. So now you might be thinking, only in public radio would you hear such a kumbaya divorce. But here's the thing. These people might not be as uncommon as you might think. Everybody in the United States knows a family that's like this, that have a connection after a divorce. Judy Osborne is a family therapist in Boston who says a peaceful divorce is a lot more common than you might think, although many still regard it as an oddity. She's written a new book called The Wisdom of Some Separated Parents. Every single person that I interviewed said people always say that to them. This is so unusual. She interviewed 55 people who had been separated more than 10 years, and their divorces weren't all as smooth as Paul and Suzanne's, at least to start with. In fact, some of their divorces started out horribly. The kind of hurt and anger and sense of abandonment uh, that's often there at the beginning of a separation and a divorce, it changes over time, especially if you have children that keep you connected. And you find a way to fill that space that was filled with anger and sadness with a more benign space of connection between you that that depends on your relationship you've had for a long, long time. Osborne says it usually takes some time for people to get established in their new lives before that benign space can happen. Sometimes they're brought together by life events, oftentimes around their children and emotions have cooled enough for a friendship or some means of understanding to become possible. Just as Paul would remind his dates it was okay to mention the names of former spouses, Osborne is making her own push to change the way we talk about divorce. All of the ways we, ha- we live in families now are outpacing our language. So I'm proposing using the language of untangling for separation and rearranging for whatever you do after that. Rearranging and the untangling, I think, if we can find a way to use those, it will mean that the partners don't have to think about ending, you know, or erasing it, and neither will the children or the rest of the family or friends. Osborne focused on couples with children, and Paul and Suzanne are the first to admit that not having the pressure and emotion of kids involved certainly made it easier for them to end their marriage peacefully. On the other hand, people without kids could just go their own separate ways and never see each other again, and that wasn't something they chose to do either. A big part of that is their shared commitment to making this radio program. Something that we did create together after deciding not to have children. And 
being very committed to its success and its continuance. Uh, that whole year when we were breaking apart, she was still the host of this monthly program. So that that was a a, a, a real important piece of it, I think, that um, kept us communicating and cooperating to create something that we felt very strongly about. Because we decided never to have kids, I felt like Peace Talks Radio is our only child. It's this amazing thing that we created together. We accepted an award for Peace Talks uh, recently that Suzanne couldn't be at, and uh, we recorded some comments that she made and played them back. My deepest thanks to my Peace Talks co-founder and dear friend, Paul. Peace Talks was our only child. While I'll take credit for surviving some labor pains the night before taping our first show with Eric Kolvig, you, in most cases, have been a single parent, particularly since our divorce in 2004. Paul has driven Peace Talks to countless soccer practices and stayed up late helping her finish homework. While I got to enjoy all the fun of interviewing intriguing people and the accolades like this wonderful award. And after I heard them, you know, and I had to speak again, I broke up. We keep at it in part, I think, to celebrate the peace and friendship. Love and respect that we are committed to preserving uh, between the two of us. And some of the people in the audience knew us. Um, others didn't. But I just imagine that if you took a poll, you know, of that group, that most would say, oh, gee, you know, he's not over her. And it's okay for them to think that. Um, I knew that when, you know, I got emotional over that, that it it wasn't about that. It wasn't about me, you know, longing to be married to Suzanne again, but it was about what we're trying to do now and being emotionally connected to the value of that for the world, really, but I don't think people understand that uh, very well. Well, maybe now a few more people do. For Peace Talks Radio, I'm Sasha Eslanian. Peaceful divorce is our topic today on Peace Talks Radio. I'm Paul Ingalls. As Sasha noted, Suzanne Kreider and I know that emerging as friends from our divorce might have been easier since we chose not to have children. When we return, I'll talk with a therapist who works with divorcing couples with children. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. More after this break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We have scores of episodes in our series going back to 2003, and you can hear all of them online at peacetalksradio.com, including today's program, in which we're exploring ideas about how to resolve conflicts arising out of the decision by a married couple to divorce. Next, I talk with Samuel Roll about the challenges facing couples with children and how they might have a better shot at finding peace after divorce. Samuel Roll is Professor Emeritus of the Department of Psychology at the University of New Mexico. In his practice, he works with a lot of child custody issues and offers therapy to couples who are trying to save a marriage, end a marriage, or recover from the end of a marriage. I asked him what are the chief obstacles to couples finding peace after divorce. When most people end a divorce, it reminds me of the quotation in the play I never sang for my father. It begins with the line, death ends a life, but it doesn't end a relationship. Marriage begins a life together. Divorce ends a marriage, but it doesn't end a relationship. And it's the unfinished components of the relationship that end up being the major cause of conflict. People have unfinished business. First of all, it involves a relationship to each other. People are angry. You know, they had, they had illusions of, uh, of how wonderful it was going to be. They had expectations. They felt people feel betrayed. They feel cheated. They feel that something nasty was done to them. And th- then also then there's children. Now, when you get a divorce, you've pulled back some of the investment, some of the, the cathexas, the emotional investment to each other, but you're still invested in the children. And two things happen. First of all, you want the children. They're your children. And, and people will, some, will often say, my children, they're my children. And in addition to that, they want to win. And the biggest prize is the children. I won the children. People say, I won the divorce. I won custody, like, it, like it's a, a bet that you made, like it's a gamble, like it's stock market. I won the lottery. I won the children. The very language of it reveals that people think of it as a contest and as one person winning and the other person losing. Right. So this idea, too, and I want to talk more about children, but I also want to go back to the unfinished business part. Is this something that is a bit of a surprise to them or that they hadn't thought about? Sure. It, it, uh, most, some people recognize it, and some people recognize it when you point it out. They, they say, you know, I'll never forgive him for not traveling with me when my mother was dying of cancer. I'll never forgive him for that. Well, that's unfinished business. Uh, he said that he would take care of me, and I got sick, and he didn't take care of me. Um, he didn't have any respect for my career. She didn't respect how hard I worked. All of those unfinished business, and 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 there's still love. And you know, there's that line from from um, from uh, Edna Saint Vincent Millay. She says, "Yes, my erstwhile love, yes, my once befriended." Must we say it was not love just because it ended? The marriage ended, but the relationship continues often with no way to resolve the bitterness left over because there's no context to work on the bitterness. It's over now. So when you're mediating this and you see what you've described, how do you therapeutically nudge people along a path toward a peaceful place? Well, uh, in all conflict resolution and all uh, peacemaking, um, people benefit when they realize that in spite of their hostility and anonymity, they have common goal or a common enemy. I think one of the things that helps uh, couples who have children uh, is when I point out that 
the research is very clear about children of divorce. And it's not that children are sometimes hurt by divorce. Children are always hurt by divorce. But that doesn't mean that they're hurt more by divorce than by a bad marriage. But they're always hurt by divorce. And children recover. But they only recover to the degree that two things happen. There's frequent predictable contact with both parents and there's reduced hostility. Once they realize that by not reducing their hostility and resolving their conflicts, they will hurt what they love most in the world, their children, they sometimes then become determined to work things out. But sometimes they don't care if they hurt the children. They are so angry. They are so angry that they're willing to destroy what they love most in the world, to hurt what they love most in the world in order to win, in order to hit back, in order to express their bitterness. So how do you work on those competitive elements? Well, there are a number of things at the rational level and some things at an unconscious level. At the rational level, you help them see concretely how it is that they're hurting the children. That is a wake-up call for most people. And you help them see, you help people see, or you help them discover how it is that by not giving up their their old anger and hurt, they are continuing to hurt, and they're tying themselves together in a shackle of animosity and hatred. If uh, it's not as simple as telling them the story, but I think the story that the Dalai Lama told, that one of the stories he told when he was here, I think contained it. He told a story of two monks who were um, going to a shrine to clean it up and, and keep it looking nice so that the people who, who meditated there could be at peace. And it was high in the mountains, and so anytime it rained, any little creek became a river. And when they were on their way, they met a, a woman who was sitting by a river, a creek that had uh, become a river, and she was sitting with a basket of food, and she was crying. And one of the monks said to her, what's the matter? She said, well, I crossed the river to buy food for my children for the week, and then it rained. And if I try to cross the river, the river may take my food, and my children won't eat this week. Or the river may take me and they won't have a mother. One of the monks said to her, listen, my brother is big and strong. You give him the basket and he will hold it on his head and he will cross and your children will eat. And he said, and I am even stronger. You will sit on my shoulder and I will carry you across and you'll be safe and your children will have a mother. When they got to the other side of the expanded creek, she gave them a little token, a little money to take to the shrine and and honor their loving kindness. An hour later, one monk turns to the other and says, you know, when we became monks, we, would, we said, we vowed that we would never touch a woman, even the hem of her garment. And now you had the softest, most tender part of a woman's anatomy on your neck. And his brother said, you're right. But, you know, I put her down an hour ago. You're still carrying her. Carrying old hurts repeats the hurt. And it's a responsibility for the person carrying the hurt to set it down. And it's not only your responsibility, it's your vested interest to put down the old hurt. Or else you can die of the poison of carrying around vengeance. Nations have done it. People have done it. Religions have done it. And so I think it's not that you tell them that it happens, but in your work, in the delicate work of therapy, either individual therapy or couples therapy, you help them learn to do that. And there's another thing that, that, that every divorcing couple has to go through. And I think um, it's touched on when Robert Frost's son died and he buried him. He became very depressed, despondent, and thought he was going to die. And he may have been despondent, but he was still an author. He's still a uh, poet. He wanted to get the credit for anything that got written on his tombstone. So he wrote in his own epitaph. He said, forgive, O God. 
my many tricks on thee, and I'll forgive your great big trick on me. And the big trick that God plays on us is that we human beings are the organism made for love. Unlike kittens, we don't come in the world looking for a nipple. We come in the world looking for a face and to be held. We are the organism made for love. And everything we love, we lose. Now, the blessing is that within this bizarre organism called human beings that's made for love is also built in the capacity to grieve. But you have to do the grief. Every separation, as Schopenhauer said before Freud, every separation is like a death and every reunion is like a resurrection. But every divorce is like a death. But it's like a death that you can't put away in the graveyard because the foot keeps on coming out. And so dealing with the unresolved aspects of the marriage, dealing with with the investment in your children, and then dealing with the grief or not dealing with the grief because if you don't deal with the grief, it becomes embittered depression and raging anger. So if you take care of those three things, you come a long way toward being able to have a relatively more peaceful divorce and a relatively more peaceful recovery because Divorce in is assault, not only on the children, but on the, people, on the people being divorced. And for most people, the cleaner the break, the better. And especially their children. So if you are a divorced couple and you come over to pick up your children and you sit and have coffee and donuts with your ex-wife, what are the children thinking? They have the fantasy. Maybe they're going to get back together. And every time the children think you're going to get back together and you don't, it's a new injury. So especially when there's children, the cleaner the break, the better. The, 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 the best is for the children to see that their parents have a benign, non-hostile relationship with each other. And so that means, I call it the Kmart model. You say good morning, she says good morning. You say goodbye, she says goodbye. Uh, I say, uh, you know, I broke my leg. You say, I'm sorry to hear that. And then you leave. What, what about the other side of that equation, though? What's the message to the children if the only thing that can be worked out is that they get dropped off in a public parking lot and run across to another car? Well, of course, that, that, that's horrific. Uh, this, that should not happen because that's not a human relationship. They, they don't have to have a – let, let, let me tell you how it was re, uh, summarized in the research. Uh, this was from longitudinal research following now over 30 years, parents, uh, families where the parents got a divorce. There are only a number of variables that are important, not who has the horse, not who has the most money, not who goes to church more often, not who, uh, who, who reads books with the children. These are the variables that are important on getting the children from the trauma of the divorce to recovery to pre-divorce level. The variables are children do better to the degree that there's reduced hostility. And that's reducing the hostility to zero. It doesn't mean moving it over to the positive side. And the other thing that children need is fixed predictable contact with both parents. The third variable, one which you don't have any control over, is that boys, just, boys recover faster from divorce than girls because girls have a harder time with every social stigma. And divorce is still a social stigma. It doesn't matter if it happens to the majority of people. It's still a social stigma. It's a failure. You yeah, put but a, I've, been, I've been divorced twice, and I don't consider it a failure either time. I consider well, it the end of a chapter. And, you know, with my more recent marriage, it was the end of a good marriage. But Well... And, and and that's fine and because it can be that way. But you didn't get married with the intention that this might end in a divorce. You, end, you, you got married, you wanted it to last. So it's a failure in the sense that you did not fulfill your initial 
plan in the marriage. It doesn't mean that you're, you are a failure. Most people who get married say, I want this to last. And it doesn't. So it doesn't mean that you're a failure, but it means that intention was not fulfilled. Yeah, well, sort of splitting hairs. I like your phrase that it's an it's a intention that isn't fulfilled. Yes. So, Sam Roll, can I give you like a hypothetical uh, in a child custody situation? Even among couples who are trying to cooperate, you know, one is okay with video games for their boy. One is not. One's okay with one extracurricular activity. One is not. One doesn't like the kids spending time with an in-law, certain in-law. You know, one obviously is happy with that. So what tips do you have to address things like that? How do you come to peace with it? How do you either come together or if it doesn't go your way and you're the spouse that doesn't see it go your way, how do they come to peace with it? Well, first of all, uh, and this is, this is uh, reviewing some of the stuff we talked about earlier, you and I. Um, once the parents can be shown that children recovering from divorce didn't depend on whether they watched the video game or not. It depends on reduced fighting. Mm-hmm. The most important thing for you to your child is to reduce the fight. So even if they feel like this is, these are values choices. They, that's yeah. right. That, unless, they, unless, unless they cross some line, mm-hmm. unless they cross some line that somebody independent of you is saying this is really harming your child. Right, let me give you some examples. One, in one case, people wanted to go to court because one parent was feeding the child yogurt three times a week. Well, first of all, I admire who in the hell can get a child to eat yogurt once a week, much less three times a week. And I said, unless there's a physician, a doctor, a pediatrician that said this kid's getting too much calcium and protein, let it go. You, you supplement his diet. You supplement her diet by whatever you think makes sense. But fighting over the yogurt is going to do worse for your child than eating too much yogurt. People have fought over uh, whether or not a child has to go to church. You know, this is my favorite, fighting for Christ, right? <laughs> Hurting your kid on Christ's behalf. You can't take him to your church. You have to take him to my church. It matters more that the children see you angry and unchristian in your behavior, no matter what your faith is, than which church they go to. So sometimes uh, they'll help them see that. But a lot of times when you have such strong reactions— one of the things that you can help most reasonable people do is agree to disagree. And when you agree to disagree, there are peacemakers in the world. If you're a Navajo, they are real peacemakers. They call them peacemakers, right? If you are not a Navajo, they, we call them mediators. We call them arbitrators. So you give up some control and order that you do not fight because fighting is going to be the worst thing. And so somebody will talk to you, talk to children, and then help you mediate it, huh? If there's something that, it, that so severely interferes with your child's health, with your child's well-being, and you can't get it mediating, then the last resort is you go to the court as the last resort. And, you know, courts don't like to be involved in these things, but they will, uh, you know, if, if, if they have to. And, and they should. They are the last resort for settling it. But there are a lot of things to do beforehand, including consulting each other and consulting counselors, consulting mediators, finding an arbitrator, and at last resort, going to the court. Mm -hmm. How do you think the court system in general serves couples who have to take that step in divorce disputes? I have been amazed, impressed, pleased, uh, awed by how hard domestic relation judges work so that children will not be harmed by continuing battles. You know, some judges go into domestic relations as, as soon as something happens, they jump out to the other. Why? Because it's very, very, very hard and it's no glory and it's a lot. People are always angry at you. 
But so the judges who end up staying of their own free will in domestic relations and family court are the most dedicated people I've seen. And I've seen a lot of people. That's what I do for a living to see people, right? Yeah. But they're there. But they, they, they have to operate under law and they have to operate under a system. And they cannot force people to get along any more than anyone else can force people to get along. One of the things that, you know, one judge said she didn't realize how impotent it made her feel to be a judge because here she was, wanted to help children, and all she had to do was stop the family from fighting, and she couldn't. Hmm. We try to be solution-based here on Peace Talks Radio, Sam Roll. So even if it means repeating some of what you said, what works best to reduce conflict when couples are clashing, usually over kids, in the years after a divorce? This is what I think uh, works best in summary. I think it works best if, first of all, you take a look at what are the unresolved issues between you, what sadness, what anger, what resentment. Take care of that. Take care of the stuff that you're carrying. Then it, the other ingredient to help work is to remember that you have both a vested interest in the well-being of the children, that fighting even if you're fighting for something good, it's usually going to hurt the children more than if you find some way to compromise. The other one is that we don't like to deal with grief. We don't like to deal with sadness, but every loss implies a sadness. If you deal with your grief, you're less likely to act it out. And then after that, if you recognize that there are resources around to help, there are resources for you to help you with your own grief, with your own resentment. There are resources to help the two of you if you may teach you to talk better together about the children. And there are resources. We can't stop the conflict, but you can help resolve the conflict. You, you can't make pretend there is no conflict sometimes, right? The Palestinians and the, and the Israelis cannot pretend they don't have horrific conflicts. They both want Jerusalem. They can't pretend they don't. But they could find some ways besides destroying each other and the city they both love so much. And that is to use peacemakers. And, and by use peacemakers, so maybe in the legal arena, so maybe in the psychological arena, uh, in, in your, and maybe within your religion, within your tribe, within your people. And all of those have as their aim the reduction of the hostility between the two people and the reduction of the fighting because the more fighting you do when you're getting a divorce, even if the children don't see it, the research is clear, the more hostility you have between two parents after divorce, the more your children are impaired, damaged, hurt. And your love for your children has to be the overriding motivation against your own injury, against your own hurt, against your own resentment, and against your desire to win. Samuel Roll is Professor Emeritus of the Department of Psychology at the University of New Mexico and has a psychotherapy practice in Albuquerque, New Mexico. More Peace Talks Radio after this break.
I'm Paul Ingalls. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. Today we're exploring ways to help couples and kids find a more peaceful place after the upset of divorce. Earlier in the program, reporter Sasha Eslanian told the story of my own divorce from Peace Talks Radio co-host Suzanne Kreider, who's still my dear friend today. We asked Sasha to tell our story because she's been reporting on various aspects of divorce for many years, including producing a documentary for American Radio Works called Divorced Kid. We wanted to play a couple of excerpts from that program that relate efforts in Minnesota to help divorcing couples and their kids get through the challenge of divorce better and land in a more peaceful place. Here again, Sasha Islanian. Hennepin County, Minnesota has taken aggressive steps to improve how divorce is done. Judge James Swenson joined the family court bench in Minneapolis in 1995. Back then, by the time a divorce case made it to his chambers, it was already 12 to 18 months old. The cases that I got were ones that seemed to be unsettleable with quite a bit of animosity and rancor, which led to unpleasant experiences as a judicial officer, basically getting in the middle and uh, refereeing a fight. Swenson says the pain for kids involved was readily apparent. Kids were stuck in the middle while the legal process dragged on, and the court costs drained precious family resources, adding to the stress level. We wanted to get kids out of the middle of messy custody fights. So in 2000, Hennepin County tried something different. What if judges acted more like triage nurses and intervened quickly before things got a chance to fester? They would try a completely different tone— the first meeting with the judge, right after filing for divorce, there would be no motions, no judicial robes, and the attorneys would sit on the sidelines. The judge would um, sit down with the parties and talk to them about such things as childhood development, what they could do to um, help their kids, what would um, send their kids' mental health south real fast, what they could do to preserve some of their assets for their kids' extra kicker act activities or college rather than the lawyer's kids' extracurricular activities in college. After the initial meeting, the couple would come back a few weeks later and meet with a male and a female custody evaluator. They'd try to come up with a reasonable custody plan that everyone could buy into. A separate meeting dealt with the financial part of divorce. An astonishing thing happened. 65% of cases settled within 30 days. Swenson jokes it was an absolute boon for judges. Even the cases he did have to try were less hostile. My number of days in trial went down 35%. And the number of cases that I had where it was highly vitriolic with really ugly testimony and worrying by the lawyers dropped off the edge of a cliff. In early 2009, Harvard's Kennedy School of Government cited Hennepin County's program as one of the top 50 innovations in government. The courts have tried to improve what happens in the legal system. But policy efforts to improve divorce haven't stopped there. Most states require divorcing couples to complete a parenting program. Sometimes kids have to take classes, too. Hennepin County used to require a three-hour session for those kids who were stuck in the middle. In 2005, I visited a class run by the nonprofit The Storefront Group. They group kids by age, 6- to 8-year-olds, 9- to 12-year-olds, and teenagers. I want to see the 9- to 12-year-olds because that was the age I was when my parents split up. There were no divorce classes for kids back then. When I go to storefront, parents are dropping off their kids. They'll come back just for the final moments of the class. 
A girl named Lizzie bounds in with a big smile, and her dad kids the instructors. I hope you can get her to talk. Lizzie's 10, with wavy light brown hair and brown eyes. Her parents are getting divorced. She's got a lot to say. Sometimes I ride my bike around our neighborhood and look for, um, like, a little spot, and I like to sit in the grass and think about stuff that's going on, like um, our divorcing. The kids are given workbooks. One page shows cartoon faces with different emotions. Sad, mad, worried, happy. The kids are asked to circle how they felt when they found out about their parents' divorces and put boxes around how they feel about being in class today. I put circles around the sad faces because I felt kind of sad when my mom and dad were going to get a divorce. And I put a squares around some of the happy ones because I was kind of happy that I was going to come here. I felt kind of like this because I know somebody would help me get through this. What feeling is that? Kind of happy, actually happy, and then I felt kind of worried that um, I'd be the only um, girl here or like not a lot of kids would like me. I miss my mom and sometimes my dad and... It's pretty hard. Two storefront instructors, Sean Neal and Rachel Gustine, gently lead the children through a discussion of feelings and how they're all normal and what to do if you feel angry. They emphasize kids aren't responsible for adult problems. Is it ever really a kid's fault that no. adults can't solve their problems? No. no. Does that sound silly? That's what my dad said. He said that um, it's not your fault you're getting... We're getting divorced, mm-hmm. or, yeah. These fourth and fifth graders have had plenty of exposure to adult problems. The stories start to flow. My mom has a friend named Brad, and we go over there a lot. And my mom doesn't want my dad to know, but I tell my dad anyways. And she says, don't tell dad that we were here today. But I still tell him because I think that he should know. Because mm-hmm. they're still technically married. <laughs> yeah. Also, my dad, he knocked down our Christmas tree, and he broke a lamp, and he broke the window, I think, a little bit, I think. And there was, like, glass all over the floor, and my mom told me to be careful, and they just started fighting and stuff. These kids seem to know they're out of their depth dealing with unhappy parents, but they don't know what to do about it. Here's Lizzie's take. It's like um, when you watch a grown-up movie, you don't want to know about this stuff. That's yet. right. You want to, you probably want, shows. you'll probably say in your mind, I don't want to learn about this stuff until I'm a grown-up. Mm-hmm. The group practices role-playing. They learn about four different divorce traps kids can fall into. The first one is messenger. How does it feel to be, to be passed back and forth between mom and dad so many times with all these confusing messages? Uh, it makes me feel tired because I'm walking back and forth. Yeah, it is tiring. Like, who wants to be passing all these messages? Wouldn't you rather be out jump roping or watching your favorite show? Instead, you got to remember all these things to tell each other. Don't you just want to tell them, you're an adult. Please talk to the other adults and leave the kids out of it. Mm-hmm. Yes. The next trap is called spy, when one parent asks you to snoop. Could you go find out if he's dating somebody new? Just go through his cell phone. Look, 
look and see if there's any numbers you don't recognize. A girl named Tess plays along, gets caught spying, and says it feels weird to get in trouble for something she didn't want to do in the first place. So if someone wants you to be a spy, you might say, I'm not comfortable with that. Might be hard to say, but it feels better than getting caught spying. Okay. The next one is poison. Annika volunteers to be the child in the poison game. Her pretend parents fill her ears with poisonous words about each other. How does it feel to be I'm the child scared. of the people who are mean to each other? You're scared? Yeah. What do you think you could do when you feel like your parents... I'll tell you? both of them secrets about getting back together. <laughs> well... Whoops, not quite. Annika has responded to the poison game with a game of her own, trying to parent-trap her folks back together. The instructor suggests a different strategy, that she be honest and say it hurts her feelings when her parents say bad things about each other. The final game is the substitute, when a parent treats a kid like another adult, maybe leaning on them too much for support, which is a confusing role for a kid. Now the kids are ready for their final exercise. They write a joint letter to their parents that the instructor will read aloud at the end of the class. We're going to bring your parents in now. Just stay seated where you're at, and then your parents will The parents take their places behind their sons and daughters. Sean, the instructor, reads the letter. When you told me about the divorce, I felt mad, scared, ashamed, disappointed, sad... The parents' faces remain blank. One dad drinks a Coke. I'd been expecting this to be the most emotional part of the class. Instead, it feels vacant. In 2008, Hennepin County stopped requiring these classes, citing a lack of money to enforce the mandate and a reluctance to intrude on family privacy. Once the classes weren't required anymore, enrollment dwindled and the nonprofits were forced to cancel them. There's not a lot of good data on how well these classes work for kids anyway. I wondered if what the kids learned in three hours would stick with them. Or was it like passing out paper tents to people in a thunderstorm? Over the next three years, I try to follow the kids I met in this class— Nearly all their families have moved, have different phone numbers, or they don't respond. The only family that welcomes me back is Lizzie's. Only now that she's 12, she goes by Ellie. I go visit her at her dad's house. So your family has changed a lot in three years. Oh, yes, a lot. I have three brothers and a new stepmom. She's amazing, and most of the time at least. She's really nice when she's not being a neat freak. But, yeah, it's pretty good. Ellie's pretty typical of a divorced kid. Not too many years have passed, but she and her brother Ben have gained a stepmom, a stepbrother, also named Ben, and now Daniel, a half-brother who's a year and a half old when I visit. It's a lively household with a white pet rat named Sugar in a cage in the living room and a big trampoline out back. Two weekends a month and Tuesday evenings, Ellie and her first brother Ben spend time with their mom. Ellie seems chipper about life in both households. I ask her what she remembers about the divorce class. I remember doing a lot of activities, and the teacher was really funny. I mean, he would tell us that it's all your fault, and then he would be like, just kidding, and stuff like that. Something that usually I learn in class goes through one year and out the other. But I remember mostly about drawing pictures and telling the teacher what we think about our parents and how they yell and stuff. So, yeah. Ellie says it felt good to meet the other kids at Storefront and talk about their experiences, even if she never saw them again. The class is a positive, if hazy, memory for Ellie. 
In that class, Ellie had described divorce as watching a grown-up movie she wasn't old enough to understand. She says it's still playing in her head, only now with a slightly different cast. My stepmom and my dad were actually fighting, and I just felt like, is this a rewinding movie? Like, did it rewind? I mean, it felt exactly how my parents fought. A year later, I make one last visit so I can interview Ellie's parents. Ellie's now 13, and she goes by Liz. It's a Sunday morning, and her mom drops by so I can interview her mom, dad, and stepmom all together. Liz stretches out on the couch across the living room and offers her own commentary. The tone is comfortable. Her parents, Jim and Shelley, say they think things are much better for their kids now than they were four years ago when they divorced. I knew it would be tough on them, but I also knew that it would be tougher if we hadn't. Um, so in the end, I think it was better for, for us to do what we did. And we're better friends now than we were when we were married, without a doubt. And um, I think that's a good example for Elizabeth. So to see that you can be really good friends with somebody and you don't have to be married to them. So I, I, I think they handle it. I don't know. What do you think, Shelley? I, I think they did pretty good. I mean, yeah, we did try to keep the kids in mind as much as we could. Um, I know for myself I wasn't prepared really, with the reaction, because I probably wasn't even prepared with my own reaction. Liz's mom, dad, and stepmom say they're in touch on a daily basis to talk about the kids and to present a united front. Shelley says she's grateful to Jim's new wife, Carrie, for doing what's best for her kids. Carrie says this friendly cooperation didn't happen overnight, but came about because everyone kept an open mind and was able to move beyond things that happened in the past. Liz's dad concedes there's pain and sadness that come with a blended family, but there are also more people to love the kids. Liz pipes up from across the room. That's probably the best line you've said all week. Four years on, Liz is growing up inside what's known today as a good divorce. The adults in her life get along and work constructively for the sake of the kids. You can feel the relief in the room. You can hear the whole documentary Divorced Kid by Sasha Eslanian via a link on our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com where you can hear this program again, along with all the programs in our series dating back to 2003. The website is also where you can order CDs of most episodes, sign up for a podcast, or our newsletter. And it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program. All the details at peacetalksradio.com. And we're on Facebook, too. If you'd like to find us there, just search Peace Talks Radio. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, AMP Concerts, Albuquerque's roving concert series at ampconcerts.org, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Sasha Islanian and Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Music